Professor Kahneman, who has been on the Princeton faculty since 1993, has been recognized for his pioneering studies that applied insights and techniques from cognitive psychology to more deeply understand economic problems. He is focused on problems concerning human judgment and decision-making under circumstances where there is uncertainty, which strikes me as fairly often. <laughs> this work has laid the foundation for a flourishing and productive interdisciplinary field. We are honored to have Professor Kahneman on our faculty, and we are simply delighted that his work has gained this important international recognition. Without further ado, I give you Danny Kahneman. For some reason, people do want to know that. Uh, well, at 9.15, somebody with a very distinct Swedish accent called, <laughs> and, uh, and he read me a citation that actually I was a bit excited. I suppose I didn't really hear. And then there was a very nice thing he did at the end. Uh, he said, in order for you to be sure that this is not a crank call, <laughs> I will... Uh, give you the chair of the committee, who happens to be someone I know, and uh, so uh, we verified that this was for real and not a particularly nasty crank call, so that's, that's how I heard. Not exactly, no. <laughs> Well, I think the way that, that this works, so I'm told in economics in general, is that the, the Nobel Prize is given not so much to an individual but to a field. That is, they recognize that there is some kind of development in the profession which is associated with some ideas, and in this case, the field is behavioral economics, which is a field that's been influenced by psychology and to some extent been influenced by the work that I did many years ago with my colleague Amos Tversky, the late Amos Tversky. And that's, you know, this is what has happened. It's the idea of replacing the basic idea of what we did, and I think what the award is for, is for an attempt to provide a more realistic assumption, a more realistic set of ideas about what the economic agent is like. And in what happens these days in behavioral economics is that you have economics being done with a different view of what uh, economic agents are like than used to be the case, say, 
uh, 20 or 30 years ago, and then is still the case in most economic theorizing. This is a minority movement, but that's basically what the honor is for. Well, I really don't know what it means. You know, it's, uh, I, I hope it doesn't mean too much in a way. You know, one just doesn't, you know, I have a very good life without it uh, academically and, and in other ways. And uh, so I wouldn't want it to mean too much. What it, what it means specifically to me, I should really emphasize this, is that today is not altogether a completely happy day for me because um, the work for which I'm honored is work that I did collaboratively with a close friend and, and very famous psychologist, Amos Tversky, who died in 1996. And certainly, uh, you know, we would have gotten it together. And uh, that's one of the things that this means to me today is that uh, I have, there is that shadow and the joy that I, I feel. Uh, I, you know, my sense is that this is probably good for good for the field, for a field in economics, which is populated by many close friends. Uh, I'm sure that, I'm pretty sure really that uh, mine is the first prize in this area, but I'm quite sure that it's not the last, and I have some pretty specific ideas about who I hope will get it next. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's one of the things that it, it means to me and that's because it's a, it's a joy that I've experienced many times. I mean, I have, you know, during a very long career, had many occasions in which I've experienced vicarious joy for an honor that someone else got, you know, somebody that I liked or admired. And I know that I have a fair number of friends, in a, you know, in many places, and today they are feeling that vicarious pleasure. And I must say that this is perhaps the most significant thing that I can think of right now. Uh, I, was, I will say that to print media. I think it would be nicer just to hang on for a few days. But people in the field do know. Well, uh, my colleague Emma Tversky and I were just cognitive psychologists, and uh, we started studying judgment under uncertainty because we both knew something about it. I was a teacher of statistics, and I had been a, kind of a, accumulating uh, anecdotes about the difficulties that people have figuring out elementary statistics intuitively, including many erroneous intuitions to which I was prone. And Emerson and I started working on this together a long time ago, 1969. And for several years, we worked on, a, on the study of judgment under uncertainty. And it was quite a successful research program. Uh, it attracted a fair amount of attention, it, but, you know, it was in psychology. But Amos was also a student of decision theory, and he knew quite a few economists, and he was much better versed in formal mathematical theory of the social sciences than I was. And our work, I think, was recognized in the field of economics. Then in around 1974, we decided to switch to the study of judgment and of decision-making under uncertainty, 
that was, you know, quite a rich field. There were many theories of that field. And we worked for several years on a single paper that eventually we published. And we happened to publish it in an economics journal, Econometrica, which is sort of a prestigious journal for that kind of decision theoretic work. Uh, we didn't publish it because, you know, we thought of getting a Nobel Prize someday, but unquestionably it's because of that paper, and it's because it was published in Econometrica. Uh, it would not have, you know, this would not have happened if exactly the same paper had been published in a psychological journal. So it was really quite accidental, I think, that uh, the unfolding of events, but because it was published in an economics journal, it had a fair amount of influence on the profession. It sort of legitimized a certain approach to thinking about decision-making, which eventually, through the work of other uh, economists and friends, became influential in economics itself. What are you working on now? I'm working on well-being, primarily. Uh, that's, I'm trying to understand uh, well-being, along with some colleagues here, Alan Kruger, among others. And I'm still working on some aspects of decision-making, trying to figure out uh, a phenomenon that we first named many, many years ago, Tversky and I, we called it loss aversion. And the major difference that there is in the way that people think about gains and losses, and I have a grant to study that, and I'm involved in that research. Uh, not exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what, what we're trying to do in the study of well-being is we're, we're trying to study an, an important distinction, I think, between two aspects of well-being. One, uh, which is how satisfied people are with their lives, and the other is the emotional quality of their existence and, you know, what it feels like to be, uh, to be that person. And, we are working on developing methods for separating those two and for looking more closely at, at the nature of, you know, the experience of lives that could be better or could be worse, and to separate that to some extent from the judgments that people make about whether they are satisfied with their lives and about, uh, whether they're fortunate or not. So that's, that's what I'm engaged in, with not alone, by the way, again, with a large and, you know, quite happy team. I don't think we even joked about it, <laughs> let, alone, uh, let alone hope for it. it. The thought really didn't cross our minds, uh, I'm sure, for many years. It's, it was when the work be, became recognized by economists, you know, that our friend economists thought that maybe it would happen one day, but it didn't happen for Amos. Uh. there questions from the non-press audience, <laughs> colleagues, friends, students? Amy. Yeah. I, I think it would be interesting for all of us just to hear you give an example of one of your experiments and what it shows. Because sure. I, I found myself incredibly drawn into your work when I saw the theory come together with these incredibly imaginative and revealing experimental data. Right. I can, 
Here is one, I think, which uh, we did with my friends uh, Richard Thaler and Jack Nitsch many years ago. It's an experiment that's really quite simple. You can come to a classroom with, you know, many boxes of, uh, of university mugs, you know, kind of attractive university mugs. And you arrange the experiment in the following way, that you can, on a completely random basis, half of the people get a mug and half don't, and everyone gets a questionnaire, and the questionnaires are different for the people who just got a mug and for those who didn't. And the people who uh, got the mug, are, their questionnaire says, this is your mug, you can go home with it. However, you have an opportunity to exchange it for money. And we'd like you to commit yourself. If we offer you $10, will you exchange it, 9.50, all the way down to 50 cents? The people who don't get a mug, in effect, their instruction says, look at your neighbor's mug. <laughs> and uh, now you are given a choice, and you could have either that mug or you could have an amount of money. And we'll be giving you a choice, and if you want $10 or the mug, 9.50, and so on. Now, the important thing to notice is that there is no real difference in the situation of these two people. Uh, they can both go home either with money or with a mug, and they're telling you what their preference is between money and a mug. And yet you get a very reliable effect, and the effect is that the people who have a mug demand about, well, I mean, in our experiments, I uh, have the numbers, I know them by heart, uh, the, the sellers, as we call them, wanted $7.12 for their mug on average, and the choosers uh, thought that the mug was worth about $3.50. <laughs> and, and this is a standard result that's been replicated many times, and I think it tells you something very important. It tells you that people are extremely myopic. That is, if they were thinking in the long run, they'd be thinking about having a mug or not having a mug. But they're not thinking that way. What they're thinking about is when they have a mug, they have to give it up in order to get the money, and they don't like the idea of giving up the mug. And when they don't have the mug, it's a matter of a choosing between two presents or two gifts that they could get. But they don't need the same compensation that the sellers do to give up. So it turns out that people don't think of having a mug or not having a mug. They think of giving it up or not giving it up. So people think in terms of changes, they don't think in terms of states, they're very myopic, they think of the immediate consequences, they don't think of the long-term consequences. So this, you know, it's a kind of, uh, it's when a, a typical experiment among those we've done, that is, it's, you know, it's quite small, it's about the small thing, uh, it's, it's reasonably clear, and we hope it makes a much bigger point, because the idea that people just don't like giving up and, and are quite myopic in the way that they look at, at changes, that is the bigger point we're trying to make, and we're trying to make it with this kind of experimental anecdote, if you wish. Yes? That is actually a very easy one. Uh, my choice of friends. Uh, I have been blessed by having really not only the collaboration with Amos Tversky, but throughout my career I have collaborated, and I've collaborated with brilliant people and collaborated happily. And I think that clearly, uh, if I have to think of one factor, that's the one. <clears throat>
impact on the consumer of fiscal policy stimulus and monetary policy stimulus. Uh, um, I'm happy to say that as a psychologist, you never had a course in economics. I don't have to answer your question. Uh, I'm not a hybrid. <laughs> I'm, uh, you know, I'm a psychologist. I happen to uh, work with economists as collaborators. I don't view myself as an economist. Uh, if anything, you know, I'm a psychologist with a fairly broad interest, and I, and I belong to the broader family of the social sciences, but I'm certainly a psychologist and not an economist. Let me attack that question. Sure. Some, uh, many people have said that the, the consumer has been driving whatever whatever we have of GDP, and that the consumer is tapped out at this point. Uh, they've tried to take take money out of uh, refinancing uh, whatever money they could from, from, from the taxes coming back. Does there come a point in the consumer psyche? in which they become just so uh, so afraid to spend or so uh, so uneven to spend uh, that, that the economy uh, suffers as a result. I, uh, I think you probably know more about this question than I do. Or certainly you seem to be thinking about it more than I do. Uh, I, I have no worthwhile thoughts about this topic. You know, it's, it is very important when... Uh, you know, when you're an academic, it's very important to try to separate your, your opinions, and I have lots of opinions about many things, from the thing that you know as a professional. And as a professional, I, I know little or nothing that bears on the question you're asking. Well, when you go to the supermarket... Yeah. <laughs> I go to the supermarket as a private citizen, not as a psychologist. <laughs> when you go to the supermarket, you face a bewildering choice of, of salad dressing brands. Are you thinking about theory, or are you thinking about what I want or what I need? Oh, I certainly am not thinking about theory when I go to the supermarket. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Other questions? Yes. Uh, you mentioned uncertainty Not really. <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> Give me a break, I say. Uh, the, you know, I could give you small examples, as I did in response to the previous question, of the kinds of things that we do do. But, you know, what, what broad implications they have is just too complicated to answer in a sound bite. I don't have sound bites on this. Yes. Well, uh, it's affected it in a number of ways. I mean, eventually, uh, it, there is an important question that, that arises when you begin to, to doubt some of the assumptions of economics. If you assume, as is often the case in economic theory, that people are fully rational, then you don't have to worry about the question of whether they 
make the best choices for themselves, because if they're rational, they certainly make the best choices for themselves. When you begin to doubt the perfection of rationality, when you begin to assume that people are boundedly rational, in the words of Herbert Simon, then it becomes quite interesting to ask uh, whether the decision that they make actually maximize the quality of the experiences of the outcomes that they experience eventually. And so I was led fairly directly from the question of the quality of decision that people make to what experiencing outcomes is really like. And I've been thinking about experiencing outcomes, what I call experience utility, for about 15 years. And for the last five years, or six, I've been confident enough to move to the broader question of well-being. I should have rehearsed an answer to that one. Uh, I am <coughs> this is a topic that is very dear to my heart. I mean, at Princeton, my appointment is at the Woodrow Wilson School, and I have been instrumental with the Mike Rothschild's uh, help, my former dean, uh, in setting up a program in psychology and policy. And we set up that program because we thought that uh, psychology can inform policy. That is, that it is important for policymakers to know such things as loss aversion, that it is uh, important for policymakers to know what are the effects of different formulations of the same problem or the same choice on their acceptability. And that's so I do think that there is a contribution to be made to policy. I also think that the contribution is perhaps primarily to be made through the conversation between psychology and economics. That is, it is through, behavior, through the influence on behavioral economics, I believe, that psychology is going to have its greatest impact on policy. And I could elaborate on that. Yes. I, I did not know. I mean, I'll have to ask. But I know that I know that in Berkeley, if you get a Nobel Prize, you get a parking spot. <laughs> but I, I just haven't. I haven't had time to inquire what you get here, so I don't know. No sabbatical is planned. Yes. Oh, Keynesian animal spirits. Uh, yes, there is. Uh, the, there is a long tradition of economists with an interest in psychology, and clearly Keynes was one of them. And so some of his thoughts about the way the market works have really been picked up recently by people who study behavioral finance and who, who think that, who find a lot of Keynes thinking quite congenial. I'm talking secondhand here. I, it's not really my expertise. Yes. Uh, I'm a psychologist, and I'm interested in the 
Yes, Gene. Actually, I think the, the one who's getting the prize for experimental economics is Vernon Smith. I mean, we are sharing the, uh, uh, we are sharing. The, something truly important is happening, I think, in economics. I mean, that great, that increasing interest in experimental economics and in experiments generally. Uh, that, and I think the primary credit really ought to go to Vernon Smith and to the, what he has done over the years uh, to promote this. But there is actually now some synergy between experimental economics proper and psychology. So now in experimental economics, you've got people, Vernon Smith, the Nobel uh, laureate uh, of today, uh, is doing experiments with brain imaging. Uh, while people are uh, interacting with other people in, uh, in game situations. Similar experiments are being done or planned at Princeton here. There is, uh, and with, in addition to all that, there are many experiments being done that are market experiments, uh, which study the rationality of agents and the functioning of institutions. And there is a flourishing line of experimentation, which is psychologically sophisticated and inspired, but has really grew within economics, of studying uh, people in interaction where they can be altruistic or selfish or punish others and, and studying the elements of group situations. And this seems to be having a substantial impact on a great deal of economic thinking. Yes. Uh, I have been on the phone nonstop since, <laughs> since 9.30, and uh, the one thing that I managed to hear from my wife this morning was, you don't seem to be prepared, <laughs> and, so, I, uh, and, and so I'm not. Yes. No, I can't really talk about game theory. Uh, this is not a field that I, I have studied. There is, here again, there is a substantial amount of, of interaction and growing interaction. All of these fields uh, are, are to some extent mutually supporting. And so there is now a field of behavioral uh, game theory. And furthermore, within game theory, there are increasingly sophisticated, I mean, there are models with agents that are increasingly complex and psychologically more realistic. And uh, in that sense, there clearly is an interaction and progress, but this is not at all my field. Yes? Did you have any idea which might be this one yet? Uh, I, I wouldn't want to influence others. Uh, I, uh, one thing that I do know is that the sensible financial decisions are a function of age, and my age is going to have a great deal to do uh, with, uh, you know, what we do. Yes. Um, have you been able to quantify how marketing and advertising impact? Uh, <laughs> no. That's easy. <laughs> no. Yes. Sure. 
sure. Uh, I'm 68 years old. My wife is Anne Treisman. She's a professor at Princeton in the psychology department. T-R-E-I-S-M-A-N. And I have, and I have two children. They're both in Israel, and I have three grandchildren also in Israel. A bigger one? Do they live, or do we live in? Oh, uh, we live in Princeton, but we are also fortunate enough to have an apartment in New York, and we go there for weekends. <laughs> No other questions. Please join me again. everyone to join us in lifting a glass of champagne to celebrate Danny next door. Please come to the reception.